You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 17, verse 13. But now I come to you, these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we gather now before your word, and it is the desire and the longing of all your servants to hear the voice of our God in the pages of Scripture. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. May your word be our guide. May your glory be our everlasting concern. May your spirit be our teacher this morning. May you be honored here in the way that your word is handled and in our understanding of it. Increase our love for Christ and our love for you and our love for the truth this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as a Christian, you are a bundle of seeming contradictions and paradoxes. In fact, I think all Christians are. We are walking paradoxes. And what I mean by that is that as Christians, we live in this world, but we're really not of this world. And though we do commerce and business and we dwell here and our family is here and Every worldly possession that we have is here. Really, our affections are not set on this world. They are set or should be set on the world that is to come. And as Christians, we are spiritually alive, but we are physically dying. We are considered by the world to be the scum of the earth, and yet we are the children of the King of Kings. In this world, we have and possess absolutely nothing of eternal value or of eternal significance that this world provides, and yet we are heirs of the kingdom through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so though we have nothing here, really, we have everything, and everything, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. And we seek to do good in this world, and we seek to do good to this world, and yet we do this because our affections are set not on this world, but on the world that is to come. And even though we do good in this world and do good for this world as Christians, we are hated for it, and so that fulfills Scripture that we ourselves are just like Christ, hated without a cause. And though we are hated in this world, by this world, and by everything that this world has to offer, we can remain joyful in the midst of that. That seems so paradoxical, doesn't it? That our circumstances can be one thing, and yet we can experience a very real and very lasting and eternal and divine joy in the midst of those circumstances. We are walking contradictions and paradoxes. How is it that a Christian can be joyful in a world that our Savior is not in? How is it that we as Christians can be joyful in a world that hates us without a cause? Well, we're in John chapter 17, and this gift of joy, this divine gift of joy, is what Jesus is is talking about in verses 13 and 14 and following, this gift of joy. We're going to be looking at that this morning. We've been looking at this prayer that Jesus prayed for his own, and I would just remind you of the overall outline that we have in verses 1 to 5. Jesus prayed for himself, and we saw there that even though we're praying for himself, he's really praying specifically for those who belong to him. And then in verses 6 to 19, we have Jesus praying for the 11, the disciples 
who were there that night with him. And then beginning in verse 20, he prays for all believers. So the scope is ever expanding himself, which is really in praying for himself. He's praying for us as well. Uh, and then the disciples, the 11, and then those who we believe upon him because of their testimony and because of their word. So that's the outline of John chapter 17. And we saw last week that Jesus, in praying for his those people who belong to him, he's praying for them because he wanted them to be kept safe and secure in the world which threatens us. And though the world hates us, he is praying for us who are left in the world because he has gone away. He is praying for us that we would be kept by the Father. And then he describes in verse 12 his keeping of his own. So in verse 11, he prays that the Father would keep us. And that's significant because the Father is the one who himself has loved us. We've seen that in this upper room discourse. The Father himself has loved us. So he's praying to the Father who has loved us. He is praying to the Father who has chosen us. He is praying to the Father whose people we are. And he is praying to the one who has given to him this group of people, who has determined and prepared for and planned and decreed and desires and has worked effectively for our salvation. He is praying to that one, the Father, to keep those whom the Father has committed to his charge. And then in verse 12, we saw that the Son described his own keeping work of those whom the Father has given to him. So we are the unique possession of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father and the Son both desire that we be kept, and so does the Holy Spirit, though the text doesn't say that. So does the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son desire that we be kept, and the Father and Son work to that end of keeping for eternity all those whom he has determined to save and desired to save and paid a price for. And so that brings us to verse 13, where now Jesus changes the focus a little bit and speaks of the joy that those who are his have because of what he has done and because of what he has provided. So verse 13, but now I come to you, these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Now, as we dive into verse 13 and all the way through to verse 19, I want to give you kind of a, a structure of these verses. There's a lot contained in these verses, in verses 13 to 19. And the gist of it is this, what it is that we have been provided, though the Lord has left us in this world. The Lord has left us in this world, the world hates us, but he has provided for us everything that we need to live in this world away from the Savior until he comes again to receive us unto himself. He has given us everything that we need to live in a hostile world. And verses 13 through 19 is kind of a list of those things which he has done to keep us secure, to provide for us, and to supply us with all that we need. So beginning in verse 20, remember, there is going to be a bit of a shift in verse 20. Look what he says. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that would be the 11 disciples who are with him, Judas having gone, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And then for the rest of this prayer, which is the rest of chapter 17, Jesus is praying for not just the 11, but all who will believe upon him through the testimony of the 11. And guess who that includes? That includes us as well. So we are included in this prayer. It is not a stretch and it is not inappropriate to say that on the evening before his crucifixion, the Lord had all of his people on his heart and in his mind as he is praying to the Father on behalf, not only of the eleven, but also of, on, on our behalf as well. I want you to notice something that is repeated in verses 13 to 19, and it is the central threat, or we could say the central theme of these verses. Uh, the threat itself is, is predominant here, and it is the repetition of the word world. Look at verse 13. These I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. 
Look how often that is repeated there. What is, what is the central concern there? It is the very real and imminent threat that the world and the world system poses toward those who have been given by the Father to the Son for their salvation. And it is that concern which informs all that He gives to them here. So this passage really describes our relationship to the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. This passage also describes what it is that we have been given or supplied for life in this world. And in verses 13 and 14, we see what we have been supplied. In verses 15 and 16, we see that we have been secured. In verse 17, that we are sanctified. And then in verses 18 and 19, that we are sent. So we have been supplied, we are secured, we are sanctified, and we are sent. That's the outline of the whole passage. We're not going to get to all four of those points today. We're just going to look at what it is that we have been supplied. Verse 13, we have been supplied His joy. Verse 14, we have been supplied His word. And verse 14, also then we have uh, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. So, though we are in the world, we have been given His joy. Though we are in the world, we have been given His word. And though we are in the world, we are really not of the world. So let's pick it up at the beginning of verse 13. Let's work our way through the passage. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Everything that he is doing and what he is saying here is for the purpose, for the goal of having his joy made full in the eleven, and by extension, in us, because this experience of joy is not something that is intended only for the eleven disciples. The experience and the reality of divine joy in ourselves is something that can be and should be the lot, the part, and portion of every believer in this world. So he says, now I am coming to you. And he's, when Jesus says that, he does, he's not saying that in the way that you and I say, Lord, I come to you. What do we mean by that? Lord, I come to you. We're praying, right? Now, Father, we come to you. We're talking about us coming to him in prayer. That's not what Jesus is describing. When he says, now I come to you, he's talking about really, literally, physically leaving this earth. He's coming back to the Father, which he has already said time and again throughout that evening. And he is reiterating it again now. And the concern is, I'm coming to you, and these are left behind. And he is concerned for the eleven. He's not worried. He's not anxious. Don't think in terms of that. But he is concerned, and that is the focus of his prayer. And he is praying for some things to be true of those eleven disciples, and by extension, us, as we are left in the world without the Savior. Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He is He is praying these things, and I think that this is him describing the reason or purpose, or at least one of the reasons or purposes, that he was praying audibly. Remember, Jesus could have prayed all of this without ever opening his mouth or saying anything audibly for the disciples to hear, right? Why is it that he prayed this prayer so that John and Peter and James and Bartholomew and the others could hear him pray it? Why was he doing that? These things I speak while I am in the world, so what? To what end? So that my joy may be made full in them. The reason he is praying these things for them to hear is so that in listening to his prayer, they may receive from that comfort and encouragement and, I think, the joy that he can give. If you could hear right now the Lord Jesus Christ praying for you in the heavens to the Father as your intercessor, as your great high priest, if you could hear that right now, do you think that there is anything you would fear? I don't think there is. There is nothing we would worry about. There is nothing that we would fear. We would be so full of joy just to hear what the Lord Jesus would pray for us individually. We would be so full of joy at just hearing that. And I think that that is the intention here of him praying verbally. He's saying, I I speak these things while I'm in the world so that they may have my joy. He's praying audibly for that end, that they may be filled with joy. Now, what is this joy? 
This is the last time in John's Gospel that the word joy is mentioned. So I want to answer this question. What does he mean by joy? Is it, is it happiness? Is it giddiness? Is it just a, a levity of spirit? What is real biblical joy? J.C. Ryle in his commentary, and he was a commentator that lived at the end of the 1800s, J.C. Ryle in his commentary on John describes joy this way, it is that peculiar inward sense of comfort that Christ imparts to believers and which no one knows excepting him who receives it. I'll say it again. It is that peculiar inward sense of comfort that Christ imparts to believers and which no one knows except the one who receives it. In other words, joy is not necessarily something that is outwardly observable. It is, in fact, an inward state or condition, position or attitude of the heart. And it is something that is imparted to believers through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and nobody knows that sense of joy except the one who has received it. Now, if you've ever, if you know Christian joy and you've experienced Christian joy, can you really describe that to another believer? You can in some sense, but really what you're experiencing and what you're knowing in the sense of the joy that Christ gives to you is not something that anybody else can really know in that moment except you who know it in that moment. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, this joy is not something that is assumed, it is an experience down in the depths of one's being. And when he says assumed, it means something you take unto yourself. It is not something that you reach out and grab, it's not something that you do, it's not something that you have to work to acquire. It is, he says, an experience down in the depths of one's being. Not something you produce, but something you are. Catch that. This joy is not something you produce, it is something you are. And we have some indications as to what this joy is here in the text. Notice that Jesus says in verse 13 that it's his joy, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Do you ever think of Jesus as being a joyful person? You realize that he was a joyful person. I don't think that we can all the, all the time pick that up from the pages of Scripture. There's certain things that the written word cannot communicate. But when you look at the Lord Jesus in his life, in the circumstances that he was in, we see that he was a joyful person. Do you ever think of God as being a joyful God? Do you realize that God is a joyful God? There is a sense in which the Father delights in and receives joy at and is filled with joy because of His relationship with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. This eternal, infinite love relationship that exists between the members of the Trinity makes God a joyful God. God is a God of joy. God is a God who experiences joy. The Father knows joy, the Son knows joy, and the Holy Spirit knows joy. And the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, was a man who was acquainted with and knew joy. And he had that joy. He had joy in himself. He had this inner inward sense of, of well-being, of satisfaction, of contentment, of enjoyment in the truth of God and in the Father and in the Holy Spirit and in God's eternal plan and in God's truth. He had that sense in himself and he was a man of joy. And yet Jesus himself was in this sense a walking contradiction because he was a man who knew sorrows and was acquainted with grief, was he not? And yet he was somebody who knew joy. He was a man who knew sorrows, he knew grief, and yet he knew joy. And there was nothing in his life and there was nothing in his circumstances that might have given him joy. What did he have? Nothing. Born to a poor family, lived in the worst corner of Israel, had some of the, the worst of society for his companions, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have no place to lay my head. He didn't have anything. And he was hated by the world and hated by the Pharisees and opposed by everybody who, who didn't follow him and believe upon him. And people looked down upon him. People called him names, called into question the integrity of his mother and father and her purity before he was born. 
He was slandered and he was reviled and he was accused, falsely accused of being a heretic and a false teacher and a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was slandered and maligned publicly and privately and in private discourse and everywhere that he went and hated by people and hated without a cause. And even his own friend, Judas, betrayed him, somebody that he trusted, somebody with whom he had placed a certain degree of confidence and that Judas had betrayed him. And yet, did he ever lack joy? He didn't lack joy because joy is not connected to circumstances. So the joy that a believer experiences is the joy that Christ himself had and Christ himself has. Because though he was a man acquainted with sorrows and grief, he was also a man who knew what it meant to experience and to know and to delight in great joy in his innermost being. Joy is his joy. It is also an abiding contentment. We talked about that. And it's not circumstantial. This is what makes the joy that believers experience different from the joy that those in the world seem to experience, is that our joy is not connected to circumstances. As Paul and Silas can be rejoicing in a prison cell after being lashed and thrown in prison for the night, they can be rejoicing and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God and delighting in Him and thanking God that they had been considered worthy to suffer for His namesake. That is a sense of joy and contentment and satisfaction that this world cannot explain. And it's not one that is based upon circumstances. Even in the worst of circumstances, a believer can be truly joyful. And the joy that we're talking about is not happiness, it's not giddiness, it's not lightheartedness, it's not the guy walking around with a red clown nose on his, on his face, constantly honking that and walking around with big flip-flops and making light of everything. True biblical joy is, should not even be confused with happiness. Happiness is a feeling that can come and go with circumstances, but true biblical joy comes to us not through circumstances, but in spite of circumstances, it is the gift of God and it's something we enjoy and experience and delight in because it is grounded in truth. Joy is what we have in our hearts when we understand and meditate on and delight in the truth of who God is and what He has done. Then we are satisfied. Then we are content. Then we experience and know true joy. So don't confuse it with happiness. Somebody who walks around and is always, hey, 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 happy, slappy, and, and shaking your hand and patting you on the back and giving you a big hug with a big smile on his face. People can be like that and be absolutely devoid of true biblical joy. And yet somebody who you never see smile, who sits in the, in the, uh, the pew at church and sings songs, and their, their countenance might look downcast, but in their heart they can be delighting in the true joy that comes that only Christ can give. So it's not based upon circumstances. It is that inward gift that God gives, that contentment and delight in the truth and in knowing the truth. And oftentimes that joy expresses itself in rejoicing. It doesn't always express itself in an an outward display of happiness. Uh, I can be happy about my circumstances, and then circumstances can vanish, and I cannot be happy about my circumstances, but I can still be joyful, even though I might not be happy. Because happiness and joy are not the same thing. Happiness is what we might express on the outside. Joy is that deep inward position of the heart and the spirit before God that rests in what is true of God. That is true biblical joy. And as I said, this is not the first time in this this evening with those disciples that Jesus had mentioned the need for joy or how the disciples would get joy. Back in chapter 15, verse 11, after the vine and branches analogy that Jesus gave, he says in verse 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. In chapter 16, verse 20, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. 
Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Do you see what he has been talking about throughout this evening with the disciples? The opportunity, possibility for them to experience and to know real and true and lasting joy, even in the midst of a world that has hated them. That's biblical joy. It is, it is our lot. It is our option is the wrong word. I was, I was going to use it, it, it is our blessing to delight in the truth of God even while living in a world that rebels against that truth and hates it and hates us because we stand for the truth. Now what about these things that Jesus had spoken would cause them joy? Well, let's get specific. If we went back and reviewed the first part of the prayer, we would hear Jesus pray that all things that the Father has done has been for the Father's glory, that God is going to be glorified. That brings great joy to a believer. We have heard Jesus pray that the Father has given to him a people, and given to the Son authority over all flesh for the express purpose that the Son would use that authority for the salvation of every last one that the Father has given to Him. And that the Son has been given not only a people, but a work of redemption to accomplish. And then we have heard Jesus pray that that work of redemption has been accomplished and that He has done all that the Father has given for Him to do. So that pertaining to our salvation, there is nothing that needs to be done, nothing that has been left undone. But the Father and the Son have willed and have done all of the work necessary to secure the salvation of all those whom the Father has given to the Son. And then Jesus has described us as being the unique possession of the Father and the unique possession of the Son, knowing that everything that the Father possesses, the Son also possesses, and everything that the Son possesses, the Father possesses, because they are one with each other. And all of these things have been committed into the hands of a faithful and sovereign Savior so that He could do all things for the sake of those whom God has given to His Son. Now when you hear all of that, does that not fill your heart with wonder, love, and praise? Are those not joy-inducing truths? If you were to just sit down and meditate upon the eternal purposes of God in redemption and what He has done and His sovereignty over all things and His grace in all things and this infinite and loving God who does all things for His own glory and for the ultimate good of every last person who He has determined to save and given to His Son. That is what induces joy in the heart of a Christian. Now, the world may hate us and the world does hate us and the world may persecute us They may throw us into prison, but what do you meditate on when you're sitting in prison? How about John chapter 17, verses 1 through 12? Those are incredible truths. Those are eternal truths. Those are the things that cause great, deep, and lasting joy in our hearts. And this is a joy, and this joy is not something that the world knows. What the world knows is happiness. The world does experience, those in the world, unbelievers, do experience a type of joy But the the joy that an unbeliever experiences is of a different nature than the joy that a believer experiences. The joy that a believer experiences is a joy that is not based on circumstances. What the world knows is the circumstantial joy. The world knows what it's like to be happy and rejoicing on the inside when everything is going well. When things are well with the wife and when things are well with the job and when things are well with the kids and when things are well with my health. But the unbeliever, the rank unbeliever, the person in the world does not know what it means to have a deep and abiding confidence and love of the truth of God in their hearts when they get the diagnosis of a terminal illness. When the child 
is diagnosed with terminal illness, or when the job is lost, or when all things seem to be coming undone. The true believer can sit back and delight in the truth of God and experience real joy in the heart that is not at all based on circumstances. So what has God given to us while we live in this world that hates us? The first gift is his joy. It's the joy that Christ himself possessed. Now let's look at the second one. He has given to us his word. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I have given them your word. I think this is similar to what Jesus meant up in verse 6, where he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. He had manifested the full revelation of the Father. So when Jesus describes word here, he's not talking about inscripturated or written down word. He is talking about the revelation of the Father. That's how he's been using it throughout this course of this evening. That he had given to the disciples the revelation of who God is. And he had done this by being himself incarnated in the flesh. And since he was God in human flesh, he had revealed all of the nature and character of who God is for the disciples. So he had given to them his word. And verse 8, he says, For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So this is the teaching concerning the Father and all the teaching that Jesus had delivered to these 11 men. And he is here saying, I have given all of that word to these 11 men, and they had received it, and they had known it. Have you ever stopped to ponder what a precious gift the Word of God is to have in a world that hates you? How would you know what truth to delight in and what truth to meditate on and to memorize and to to think upon when sitting in prison if you had not at first been given the revelation of that truth? Now, in this context, Jesus is not describing a written word. He's not saying, "I I took your word, wrote it down on a parchment, and handed it to these men. That's not what he's describing. What he is saying is, I have come and delivered to these men all of the teaching that you gave me, all of your nature, your character, your name, and the glories of your attributes. I have delivered this all to these men. So Jesus Christ is for us the revelation of the triune God in human flesh. He is the revelation of all that God is in human flesh. In the Old Testament, all of the prophets and all of the saints of old, they expected this revelation. And in the New Testament, they expounded and explained upon this revelation. So between the Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, stands the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And in him dwells all the fullness of God in bodily form. And he is all that can be seen and all that can be known of who God is and how God acts and what God has done. All of that is revealed to us in Christ. The Old Testament anticipates it. The New Testament applies it. They both are looking at the person of Christ because in him incarnated is the full wisdom of God and all the knowledge of God. And he came and he had delivered all of that to the disciples. So do we today have the word of God that Christ has delivered to them? We do. In the faithful record of all that God has written down through those men who were the eyewitnesses of his glory and who beheld him and knew him and saw him and learned from him and received all that the Father gave for the Son to deliver to them. So now we have it as well. We have the Word of God. What a precious truth this is. As First Peter, no, Second Peter chapter 1 says that through the precious promises of God, we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. What else do you need other than this book? To live a life in this world that hates you. What else do you need? Do you need a vision? you need a dream? Still small voice? Nudging? Prompting? Modern-day prophets, modern-day apostles, new revelation, anything outside of this book? You need nothing else. Nothing, nothing ever. Nothing ever do you need other than the written word of God. What has God provided for us who live in a world that hates us and attacks us? Everything that we need. We have the joy, which circumstances cannot touch. 
and we have his word. We have the truth which has been committed to us. And apart from this and outside of this book, we need and can rely on and should receive nothing else. All that has been and can be revealed to us about the nature and the plan and purposes of God has been anticipated by the Old Testament prophets, revealed in Jesus Christ, and expounded upon in the New Testament. And so we have the word of God given to us in a hostile world that hates us. So though we are in this world, we have been given his joy. Though we are in this world, we have been given his word. And third, though we are in this world, we are not of this world. And this is the end of verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And here Jesus again reiterates this principle that the world hates those who belong to God the Father and those who belong to God the Son. The world hates you, Christian. Are you used to that yet? I don't think the hatred's going away anytime soon. So, you know, you can either kick against it or you can just get used to the fact that the world is not your friend. Anybody who makes themselves a friend of the world is an enemy of God because the world and God are at irreconcilable odds. And they will never join forces and there will never be a peace treaty between the world and God. And so those who are friends with the world and love the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and all that is part of the world, they are enemies of the one true God and they are at enmity with God because God and the world cannot be reconciled. So Christian, if you belong to God, then you are going to be hated by the world. And you ought to get used to this. And I hope that you're learning to expect this. And I hope that headlines in recent weeks have kind of started to warm you up to this idea that we are persona non grata in our own country and our own culture. It's not going to get any better. I only think it's going to get worse. So we ought to get used to it and deal with it and live with it. But we ought not to fear it. We've been told that we're not of the world, and we've been told that the world is going to hate us. I want to read to you back in John chapter 15, verse 18. We've already talked about this at some length. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. That describes the animosity that exists between Christ and the world and between those who belong to Christ and those who belong to the world. The world and the world system hates Christians. It will always hate Christians. And I think for two reasons immediate in this context. Number one, because we have been given the word of God. I think that there is a connection in verse 14 between us being given God's word and the world hates us. Because the world hates God, it hates those who belong to God, but guess what the world also hates? The word of God, right? The world hates the word of God. And so God has delivered to us his word, and the world hates us in part because we have been given the word of God, and because we know the Bible, because we believe the Bible, and because we follow and obey the scriptures, The world hates us as well. There is a connection there. The world hates Scripture. The world hates the Word. Unless they can find some phrase or some verse or some clause or some word that they can use like a cudgel to bludgeon the righteous. Then they love the Word. You know what part of the Bible the world loves the most? Judge not that you be not judged. That is the world's favorite verse. Judge not that you be not judged. And they will use that like a cudgel to bludgeon you 
Or they will pull some verse out of context in Leviticus to show you that you ought to be your brother's keeper and use it to confiscate all your wealth and redistribute it to whoever. The world loves certain passages in certain parts of Scripture, but the word in its context, its actual meaning, its actual truth, the world hates that. And so the world hates those who have been given the word. And listen, when we stand for the truth and when we love the truth and when we obey the truth and when we always bring people back to Scripture, the world hates that. And you know why it hates that? Because the Word of God reminds them that they are under the wrath of God, that they are deserving of the judgment of God, and that their lifestyle is not approved at all by God. So they hate that. Because every reference to this is a reminder of those truths. That there is a God, and that all men will stand before Him. And they know this, and they know the truth about God, and they suppress it in their unrighteousness. And so they kick and scream against the goads of God's Word because they do not want to have anything to do with it. And so they hate God's Word just like they hate true Christians. And they hate us not only because we have been given the word, but because we are not of the world. If, they, if we were of the world, the world would love us, because the world would love its own. But because you've been chosen out of the world, Jesus said in John 15, 19, because you've been chosen out of the world or taken and chosen by God to be his own precious possession for his own sake and for the glory of his own name, for that reason the world hates you. The world hates Christians for, for these reasons, because we have been given the word of God and because we do not share their affections, we do not share their loves, We do not share the things that they hate. We do not share their priorities or anything with the world. We're not of the world at all. Now in one sense, we are of this world. In this sense, that we're born here, that we have commerce here, that we have jobs here, that we build houses here, that we have inheritances here, and we do things in this world. And we are among these people, and we were born into this world, and so we share, like them, a common past of being under the wrath of God and being hated, uh, or sorry, being under the wrath of God and being against God and hostile to God and hating God. So we share that with the world, but we've been chosen out of the world. So in another sense, we're not of this world at all. We're not of this world in the sense that our citizenship is not here. In one sense, we are no more part of this world than Jesus Christ is. He was born into this world like we are, right? He was. He lived here like we do for 30 years, for 33 years. He had ministry here and he knew people here and he had friends and family here and people that he trusted here and people that he loved here, just like we do. In that sense, we are like the Lord Jesus. But in in another sense, we are no more of this world than Jesus Christ is in that our Father is in heaven, our name is written in heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, everything we value is in heaven. There is nothing in this world and nothing of this world that is of any lasting significance to anybody seated here who is in Jesus Christ. Nothing. Not your job, not your 401k, not your house, not your car, not your clothes, not the chairs that you're sitting in, not the new church building two blocks away. There is nothing of eternal significance or value to any of us that this world has to offer. The only thing that is of significance and value to us is the eternal souls of the people that we love and the Word of God. Everything else that is in this world is of no value eternally whatsoever. None. And so we've rejected all that. And the Christian's rejection of the world and refusal to love the world is itself an explicit condemnation to the world and the world system because in doing that, we are saying to the world, we are not of you, we do not share anything in common with you, we have no part in you, and you have no part in us. You are under the judgment of God, and we are not under the judgment of God. We are not living for anything that you have to offer. We're not with you in any regard whatsoever. All of that will perish, and everything that is of significant to me comes in the life to come. And so the Christian's refusal to love the world elicits the hatred of the world because our refusal to love it is an implicit condemnation of it. And the world knows this. And the world hates us for it. 
And so all of the forces of the enemy, the God of this age, the world, the world system, unbelievers in the world, they do their best to attack Christians. But should we fear that? Should we fear it at all? I mean, when you meditate upon the truths that we've looked at in John, I was going to say John 17, but let's just say the Gospel of John. When you meditate upon the precious truths in the Gospel of John, there has to come a point, Christian, where if you believe the truth of Scripture, you just simply say to the world, do your worst. We have nothing to fear. Nothing here entices us. Everything that I live for is the next world. So do your worst, because we have nothing to fear. And the Christian can say that we would rather have Christ and nothing in this world than to have all of this world and no part in Christ. We would rather have Christ and nothing else than everything else and not Christ. That's the Christian's hope. That's our confidence. So what have we been given to live in a world that hates us? The assurance that we are not of this world, the joy that only he can give, and the word of God. He has provided for us all things necessary for life and godliness. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you have been so good to us, good beyond measure and good beyond description to give us all of these things. We've been looking at the precious promises that are ours through the gospel and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, we thank you that you have given to us everything that we need for life and godliness, everything to lead, lead righteous and godly lives in the midst of a hostile, perverse, and crooked generation. We pray that you give us grace to be salt and light in this world, to proclaim the truth and to love the truth and to never back down. Help us to cast the hope of the world and all that the world has to offer behind us and to live for Christ in the world to come. Thank you that you have given these things to us and made them known to us in your word. And we thank you that the Savior himself prays for his church even now as our great high priest. All of these we are reminded of and all of these we delight in. And we thank you for them in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.